0: And so we are jumping back two weeks uh, before I left, remember we are going through the Gospel of Mark, and we've talked about a number of things, how this this tension is building, Jesus is constantly uh, saying things and doing things to provoke the status quo, and they're confused about who he is, and what he's doing, and why he's doing it, and that continues in our passage today, where Jesus comes to a point, and he begins to... Uh, make divisions, who is for God and who is against God. In the previous passage, they tried to make division. They tried to say who is for God and who is against God. And now Jesus begins to redefine what it means to be a a child of God in this passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin and jump into our text. God, once again, we are here in your presence because we seek to hear from you. Uh, Father, uh, I'm here to talk, but... um, People don't want to hear me. They want to hear you. I don't want to hear me. I, w- I want to hear from you. So we pray that your spirit would move among us and your word become alive and, and speak to us, that we would be transformed, changed, that we would take these, these words that you say to us, God, to heart uh, because they are life and they are truth. So open our eyes once again by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you remember back two weeks ago, we talked about uh, ch- uh, chapter 3. Uh, in, I think 28 through 30, something like that, uh, there were two accusations that the crowds, the Pharisees that made against Jesus. The first one, well, the second one was that Jesus is of the devil. And when they claimed that Jesus was of the devil, he gave a very, very strong warning to them that they were in the danger of being eternally separated from God because they were uh, attributing to the Holy Spirit things of the evil one. They were in a very dangerous situation. The other accusation outside of Jesus, you're from the devil, was that, Jesus, you are crazy. And uh, so we're going to pick it up there. Um, That first passage from two weeks ago, when it says his family came, they thought he was crazy. Remember that we talked about that word family? is a generic term. It probably doesn't mean inner family. It probably meant like close friends, maybe close relatives, um, cousins, those type of things. Close friends, people maybe Jesus grew up with. They're coming and they're calling him crazy. In this passage, it's really defined there, the not, not just generic family, but Jesus' inner circle, his mother and brothers. That word brother, by the way, probably includes sisters as well. So Jesus' was brothers and sisters. So even his own family, his friends, Jesus' closest circle, uh, uh, thought he was a little bit off his rocker. They wanted to take him home. He was burning himself out, doing the will of God. and they didn't see that. They, they just saw what he was doing. And so here in this passage, his mother's, his mother, and his brothers came looking for him. We don't know the reason, but probably for the same reason. They think he's a little bit, a little bit crazy, a little bit off his rock, and not balancing his life very well. Remember the scripture says he wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping normally because there were so many needs before him, and Jesus was trying to meet those needs. And so both the crowd, and and his parents, and his friends would assume that when they came that Jesus would stop what he was doing. Because remember the Ten Commandments say, honor your father and mother and if your parents come and say, hey slow it down, bucko, then Jesus was obligated to do that by virtue of the Ten Commandments. Unless, unless there was something higher than family. And so here Jesus points out that a loyalty and a commandment that is more basic and more important than anything else, this this claim of God that He has upon people that go deeper than any earthly family. Uh, if you're a if you watch the news or on Facebook or just talk to people in, in general today, in the spirit of tolerance and non, non-judgmentalism. Uh, sentimental, inclusivism, and all this kind of stuff that everybody is the same. If someone believes in God, they probably also will believe that everyone is a child of God. That everyone, you know, God created everyone, so everyone's a child of God. Everyone's a brother and sister. Uh, That teaching is really called universalism, that everyone is a child of God. The Bible teaches very clearly that that simply is not true. Not everyone is a child of God. And Jesus' intent in this passage was not to destroy the doctrine of universalism, but it sectionally does that even at the expense of Jesus' own family. In this context here, Jesus makes clear who is family and who is not. Who is Jesus would call his mother and brother and sisters, very intimate terms, and who are not. And his words in this passage could not be any more striking or any more clearer to the first century. And us, we have to kind of look at it because our view of family is a little bit different in the first century. So here's the first point. Being part of the family of God is not by physical relationship. Verse 31, Maybe this again. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Not only was it close friends and family, not only was it Pharisees, religious leader. now... The most intimate relationship of all, his mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, note that, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. The crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother, and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus replies, Who are my mother? And brothers. Again, families to find out it's, it's more than just the friends or, or close, you know, close relatives. It's actually Mary is there. Brothers are there, and probably some sisters are there as well. And they come to the place where Jesus is there, staying, probably Peter's home in Capernaum. That was kind of his, uh, his hub of, of ministry center there. Uh, from other scriptures, we know that Jesus had at least four brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. That's Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 55. So he had four brothers. And the word brother there does mean brother. It right? doesn't mean cousin, doesn't mean anything else. It means brother, not fourth, that half-brothers, because Joseph is uh, Jesus' uh, uh, physical father. He also had sisters, that's from Matthew 13, verse 56 as well. So, whatever the context here, at least some of Jesus' brothers and sisters are there with, with Mary. And they are standing outside, outside of the house, because of the crowds, while others are on the inside, this this I think Mark writes that because the symbolism is pretty striking. His close family are outside. And other people that aren't really his close family are inside. And so they send someone in, and probably the person couldn't get it all the way in. And he tells the crowd and the crowd relays the message in. Look, your mother and brothers are here. And Jesus' response is this: Who are my mothers and brothers? That was a shocking ethnocentric, in in that family-centered culture that day, that was one of the most shocking things you could say. He's saying, they don't really matter as much as the people that are around me. Understand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that family doesn't matter. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But what he's saying is there is a higher family, a deeper level of Family that a human being can experience than our own biological family. That's what he's saying. And in that culture, it was shocking. Like even today, among among the Jewish culture, right? Family is family is family, right? And and many other cultures as well. And and Jesus comes right against us and Says, look, need, you need to understand something. There, there's a deeper relationship that you can have, as wonderful as earthly families are. This, 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 this family that revolves around God the Father can go much deeper. So verse 34, he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. And they relayed that. Imagine uh, that going back to Mary. And Jesus said, uh, he already has his family in there already. All right? And um, what, I don't know what Mary's response is, it's not recorded. Um, what would have your response been? So what is Jesus implying with that question? Who are my mother and brothers? It's four things. So kind of, I'll, I'll kind of go through them, then we'll expand on them. First thing Jesus applies is that there are, there's no physical family connection uh, that is ultimately necessary in God's family. Uh, you, you're, not, you're not born a Christian. Any say this all the time, any more than living in a garage makes you a car. Born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. There is no physical descent. We're not talking about kingship. There's something different about being born into God's family than being born into a, a, a normal human family. So there's no physical family connection that's necessary to being God's family. There's no particular racial or cultural background that's essential either. Whether you're uh, part of the chosen people, Jews, or whether you're Portuguese, or whether you're Spanish, or whether you're male or female, or in that culture, whether you're a slave or whether you're free, um, none of those backgrounds are essential or necessary to being part of the family of God. But When you're a member, number three, when you're a member of the family of God, you're part of the only family that really matters for eternity. Our physical families will cease to to be right, my wife is ultimately my sister, weird, huh, right, that's, that's what matters, because husband and wife are temporary, right, my wife hates when I talk about this stuff, <laughs> not now in heaven, not now, uh, with you forever, um, so, but there's something greater Jesus is talking about, uh, so when you're a member of God's family, you're part of a family that matters for eternity, and number four, the family of God is a spiritual reality, not a physical one. The spiritual reality joins together zealots and tax collectors and thieves and murderers and liars and cheats and, and legalists, uh, self-righteous people. All those people are all joined together with other sinners like you and I become this family of God that God has redeemed by his blood based on his righteousness, not ours. And so the nature of Mary's request and the brother's request was natural. It was normal. It was expected. It's natural. Go take care of your family. What's not natural, what was unexpected, was Jesus' response. Who are my mother and brothers? Who are my family? And so the, the room uh, is overflowed with people that are attracted to Jesus. And we talked about this before. They're attracted to Jesus because they loved his miracles. They loved his exorcisms. They loved his healings. They loved the show of what Jesus could do for them. The crowds in Mark are never viewed in a favorable sight. There are always people, the crowds are there, but they're there for what they can get from Jesus. Not, they're not there to listen, they're not there really to follow. disciples do, but the crowds are just there. And here's the reason, crowds don't follow or stay for the long haul. We, we know that. Crowds gather and they dissipate. Remember 9-11, I don't know about this church, but after 9-11, my church, full. Three weeks later, back to normal again, right? Crowds don't stay. Individuals do, of their own volition and based on their own decision. People stay because they decide to believe. They decide to follow Jesus. When crowds gather, they're there because they're consumers. Really, and only individuals within that crowd can make decisions to follow. And so, Jesus never trusted the crowds because Jesus understood that people are there for different reasons with different agendas. Some agendas are good, some agendas are bad. Some people want him, other people want him for what he can give to them, like some spiritual vending machine. Some follow for who he is because so they realize who Jesus was, and others follow for what they think they can make him to be. Right? I can kind of transform Jesus. So I'm spiritual, but yet he's not a Jesus that doesn't demand too, too much of me. And see, most people want someone who, that can fit into their world. God asks us to fit into his world and become part of his family. God doesn't adapt to us, but we want that. Um, we want him to adopt our plans and our priorities and our agendas when God says that's not how it works because your plans and your agendas and your priorities pretty much stink. <laughs> because we're broken, and even though there might be we have good reasons for them, they tend to fall apart, because our power is limited, and our, and our sin is deep. And God comes and says, I'll take your plans and your agendas and your priorities, and I'll transform them into something wonderful that will last for eternity. So this is what Jesus says in John chapter 2 um, about the crowd, just to kind of set a context of what's going on. We've got the family outside, we got the crowd on the inside and then his disciples around him at this point. And this is from John, Jesus describing the crowd, the t- text describing the crowd. Now, while he, as Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. What's that mean? Jesus didn't need anyone to educate him about human nature. He knew other people's thoughts. He knew how people work. He knew how they lived their lives. He knew exactly what each person needed to know and what they needed to hear from them. So, though they followed him because they believed in his name, they believed in his name, not because they believed in him. They believed in the power behind his name. He could make Miracles, and do amazing things. And, and so they followed him. And so verse 24 says, he didn't He didn't trust the people in Jerusalem because they were there for ulterior motives. He was looking for something deeper. God has always been looking for a family. From eternity past, God has always been building a family. Someone that he can love and and that love becomes reciprocal. So Jesus tells that crowd and, and, and his family as well that his true family is here in his midst. But not all of them were included. He's not including the crowd. Contextually, the crowds aren't trusted. So when Jesus says, my mother and my brothers and my family are here, who's he talking about? So his next statement, he narrows it down. It's not everybody in the crowd. They're there, but it's not everybody in the crowd. Number two, being part of the family of God is revealed by doing the will of God. So in verse 35, to narrow it down to to get right to the point the heart of the matter, Jesus says, this is who his real family is. This is who are children of God. Whoever does the will, whoever does God's will, is my brother and sister and mother. That's who Jesus's family is, those who do God's will. So Jesus provides a clear, simple, blanket statement concerning who is part of the family of God. Anyone who does the will of God, uh, in Luke chapter 8, which is a parallel passage, he says, those who hear and do the word of God, are his family. The question is, what is the will of God? Just clarify a little bit. Kent Hughes says this: uh, obedience or doing the will of God does not originate in a relationship with God. Doesn't start with that's what faith does. Obedience is a sign of it. So doing the will of God is a sign, right? So if we if you're following God's will, it's a sign. you believe? Tim Keller, if you haven't read anything by Tim Keller before, please do. He's a great author, very pastoral in, in how he writes. He relates this text today to the prodigal of This is what he says. A little bit lengthy, but listen. It says, Jesus is the true elder brother. He willingly brings us into the Father's family at his expense. He died for us. He was plundered for us. We sit at the Father's table dressed in Jesus' clothes with his ring on our finger. All through him, We must celebrate and live up the fact that we are members of a kingdom family, and it is all at the expense of our big brother, Jesus Christ. Do you live every day as if you are a member of God's family, accepted and loved? Remember, this is important, a child in a family obeys not in order to be loved and accepted, but because he is already loved and accepted. And so Jesus begins to tell the people that Whoever well, does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So in the context of Mark, what is the will of God? Because this idea of the will of God is this big concept in the Scripture. Remember, every book of the Bible has its own context, and words mean different things. So what a word means in Genesis, for example, that was probably written about 2000 B.C., roughly, or at least uh, started to put down, and the time of Jesus, right, 2,000 years later, words change. Words change in 20 years, right? So two, So, what's the will of God in Mark's mind as he's writing it down? Mark has already told us what he believes the will of God is. And so we're going to go back to chapter 1, verse 15. This is the will of God according to Mark. The time has come, he said. This is um, John the Baptist. Uh, the kingdom of God has come near repent and believe the good news. So the first idea in mind that represents the will of God is that the will of God is that people repent and believe the good news. That is the will of God. For every human being, God's will, God's desire, God's passion, what he sent Jesus for, that people would repent of their own ways and believe the good news, believe the gospel of Christ. And in verse 18, a few verses later, the second part of God's will, it says in descriptive terms, at once they, as the disciples, left their nets and followed him. And through outmarked, that's what you get repeatedly, that the will of God is to repent, believe the gospel, and follow Jesus. That is the will of God. So when Jesus in this context says, my true family does the will of God, what he's saying is, true family have repented Believe my message and are following me. He's not talking to the crowds. He's talking to those disciples who have made a commitment to follow him. That's his real family. That's who Jesus desires to be with. By the way, it doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to love and care for his family. He's not saying that. He's not saying ignore your family if they don't become Christians. In fact, on the cross, what does Jesus do to John? He says, John, I need you to take care of my mother. right? To take care of my family. And so, we have responsibility. What Jesus is actually saying here is that he and the family of God must always come first. They are the pri- priority, no matter how much pain may cause to us or others, the family of God is the priority because it is the eternal priority. And, and this caused pain in my family. I mean, I told you guys some of this before. Um, when I, before I became a Christian, I was a drug dealer. I grew up Catholic. Um, you know, with the church randomly, that type of thing. Um, but, you know, I'm Portuguese. I'm supposed to be Catholic. So, uh, and so I'm a drug dealer. My family knows this. I become a Christian. I go home and I say, Mom, I've met Jesus. I'm a Christian now. And she goes, Oh, you've left the church. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, said, I was a drug dealer. You no, know, she, but so it hurts family because they don't understand, right? And uh, after a while, they, you know, I had, a, you know, I was abusing my family by what I was doing. And now, after after becoming a Christian, even though my parents didn't immediately believe, um, they, you know, they understood that. Why is he even more committed to his family? See, that's, that's the thing: when you commit to God's family, then you then you see people in a different light, and your own personal family who might annoy you, right? You learn to love because they're loved by God just like, like you are. And so, we're not saying that, um, that you abandon your family, uh, though your family might abandon you. It's a different thing, right? Um, those who love Christ um, are, are part of a family that goes far beyond our physical family. So, just in conclusion, really quick today. Once again, what Jesus is doing in this past, he's trying to clear up some confusion regarding the kingdom of God. They're confused. Israel is confused. The Jews thought they were okay because they were born Jewish. I'm Jew. I'm, I'm part of the chosen people. I'm good with God, right? Doesn't matter what I do, right? Uh, I'm good with God. Other people might have thought they were okay because they had certain relationships with people in power, or whatever it might be. They thought because they were in the garage, they were a car, right? They, they weren't, right? they, they were, they weren't okay because of their status or their relationships. Jesus redefines what it means to be a child of God. So number one, here's the things we believe. One, not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone's a child of God. We become children of God by spiritual birth, not by physical birth. It doesn't matter if your dad's a pastor or he's a super uber Christian or your mom prays every day and reads your Bible. It doesn't matter. You're born without God, and you need to make a decision for God. Being a child of God is not a physical thing, it's a spiritual birth. So that means that no one of two is born a Christian. You're not born a Christian. You're born a human, right? That's what you're born. Um, you become a Christian and a member of God's family by adoption, by God adopting you based, based on His grace that He pours out into your life and offers you and your response in faith. You're adopted into God's family. You're not born a Christian. You become a Christian by your faith in Christ. So that brings us to number three, becoming part of family, the family of God begins when we receive and believe in Jesus. That's the will of God, that you believe in Jesus and follow him, that you believe that you're a sinner and that without God you're separated from him and that Jesus paid for your sin if you trusted him then your sin is forgiven and dealt with for all eternity, past, present, and future sin, and you receive the righteousness of God, a righteousness that is not your own. I'm not righteous, neither are you. But Jesus gives us his righteousness, so God sees us as perfect, because that's how grace works. We just don't deserve it, but we get it, upon our faith and trust in him. And so, after we believe in Jesus, at that point, now number four... Doing the will of God gives evidence that we are part of God's family. That our faith is real. Because now we have God living in us. with the power to follow him and actually not live for sin and slavery, but actually begin doing things that please God in our everyday lives because we're in Christ. So doing the will of God doesn't make you a Christian. Faith makes you a Christian. Right? Faith in the right person. Not just faith in general. Faith in, in Jesus. Um, and then The power to carry out God's will comes after that. And the fifth one is a scary one, but it's the one that we need to understand. Revelation brings responsibility. The more God reveals to you, the more responsible you are for it. God takes that seriously because he created us in his image, in his likeness, and he's given us free will. And this this amazing gift to choose, we can choose to follow or choose to reject. That, that, that's an amazing gift, We're not automatons. That's, 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 there's no other cre- cre- person in creation that has a brain to go, I choose to do what is right or what is wrong. Animals live by instinct, but only human beings and God right, choose. And God's given us great gift. So he, he, with that gift, comes responsibility. The more you know of God's revealed will, the greater is your accountability to it. The more you know about what God requires of you and asks of you, the more you are responsible. What that means is punishment is not all the same in hell. Those who have never heard, the punishment is not the same as those who have heard and have rejected. Jesus has said, this is later on in Mark and also in Matthew, that the servant who does wrong willingly will get many lashes. But the servant who didn't know he was doing wrong gets few lashes, right? So the idea here, and Jesus is not promoting slavery, he's talking about a principle, that you're you're accountable to what you know, right? So we know this in life, if I get in a car and I'm, and it says 45 miles an hour and I see the sign, I'm driving 75 miles an hour and I get pulled over, do I deserve a ticket? Yes, I'm accountable to what I know, right? Now if the sign's fallen over, right, and and it's not a residential district yet, yet. And I'm going to 75, am I accountable? Maybe not, but maybe I should know because I saw the sign before, right? So it all depends what we know we're accountable for. So punishment not all the same in hell, and rewards are not all the same in heaven. Job says that some people get to heaven by the skin of their teeth. Did you know the Bible, the skin of your teeth? People just get in under the wire, right? Other people get in and they rule co-heirs of Christ, and God pours gifts upon gifts upon gifts upon them. Responsibilities. Don't think of heaven as a place where you get big. Boom, you get winged, you float around. That's all heaven is. Heaven is a place where humanity, right, is fulfilled. All you, all humanity is fulfilled. So there's going to be jobs. There's going to be responsibilities. There's going to be exploration. There's going to be everything that we desire. That's what heaven is about. Only it's in perfection not wrapped in sin. And so when God reveals something to us, especially as a follower of Christ, he expects us to act on it because we'll be held accountable. And this is scary for me because I'm a teacher. When I'm teaching you right now, I'm accountable for it. So if i blown it, God's going to go, you remember that day when you were in church and you said that thing? Well, that was wrong. You didn't do due diligence. Right? So we're responsible for that and you are too. So, the conclusion for today is simply this. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you say, I believe in Jesus and I'm following him, you need to understand that this thing here, this church family, is of utmost importance. It's the most important thing there is. Not only for building each other up in our relationship, but also this is God's plan to reach the world. Right? This, this church, this little church, is part of God's plan to reach the world. It's of utmost importance. It's more important than your earthly family. Because what we do in this church, in the body of Christ, matters for eternity. So, what really matters when you don't show up to church? It really matters when you don't belong to a small group. It really matters when you don't call each other during the week. It really, it really matters when we're not building relationships with one another. Because God loves the church. With all its problems, and all its brokenness, and all its hypocrisy, and all its backstabbing sometimes. God understands, because God redeemed us, right? He knows our sin. But now He's asked us to come together with all of our junk. And say, you know what, we're about the main thing. I'm going to repent, I'm going to believe, and I'm going to follow by the power of your spirit. Because that's God's will for my life, and it's God's will for your life as well. Don't discount the church as something that doesn't matter. Nicole pointed out a podcast to me about the, the, this idea of the small church, the forgotten church, the kind of the insignificant church in the middle of nowhere. And one of the most encouraging things in that podcast to me was the, the guy who I met before, David Kingney, is talked about how he used to hate the church. Because it's just like, oh, the church is so political, the church is so, the structure is wrong, and, it, it, it and you know, I like Jesus, but not the church. And I get, I get that feeling sometimes, too. Not about you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but but you get, we, get, we get caught up in the structure and the sin, and we don't see the church like God sees it. God sees us as redeemed, as righteous, as holy, and he has great faith in us to carry out the plans that he has for us. So our, go- our job is to believe in the church as much as God believes in the church. Let's pray.